Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am thrilled and honored to say we are joined by Dr. Peter Hotez. Dr. Hotez is the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine. He has about 18 more titles, but because of all those titles, he's extremely busy. So I'm just going to say that he's also the author of a number of books, including the recent Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of Anti-Science. Welcome, Dr. Hotez. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Right now, we have the original virus circulating, and then we have these three variants of concern, one from the UK, one from Brazil, and one from South Africa. Can you talk to us about how effective our current vaccines are at protecting us from those variants? Let me explain how the vaccines work um, first, and then I can. I think it'll become clear what it means for the South African and the Brazil variants that may not work as well uh, against the vaccine. So these, all of the vaccines in our work over the last decade has shown how you deliver the spike protein and how you induce this type of antibody called virus neutralizing antibody. And, and what that antibody does is it binds to the part of the spike protein that binds to our host receptors, which is itself an enzyme, an angiotensin-converting enzyme. And the antibody binds to um, the part of the spike protein called the receptor binding domain and prevents the virus from attaching to our host tissues. And we showed that, and that's how all of the vaccines work, whether it's mRNA vaccines or adenovirus vaccines or our recombinant protein vaccine, they all work by delivering the spike protein and inducing those virus neutralizing antibodies. The UK variant, what happens is there's, an, there's a mutation that makes one of the amino acids bind a little in the receptor binding domain, bind a little tighter to the host tissue. When, and that's what probably is linked to its increased transmissibility and, uh, and its ability to also re ultimately replicate. And that's what I was hoping to show in a podcast visually with um, a nice graphic because the uh, picture's worth a thousand words uh, in this case, but we, we don't have that luxury. But in any case, that's why the virus is more transmissible. Unfortunately, even though there's tighter binding, the, the, and the virus neutralizing antibodies of the vaccine seem to work just as well. The problem comes in with some of the additional variants of concern, like the one from South Africa and the one from Brazil, where there's a second amino acid contact there, that now the antibodies against the original strain don't seem to uh, bind as effectively and interfere with um, the attachment of the virus to the receptor. And that's why we're seeing declines in effectiveness where it's been tested, like the J&J &J vaccine in South Africa or the Novavax vaccine in South Africa, and the level of virus neutralizing antibody seems to go down against all of the vaccines. So that's a new worry that we're going to have to redesign second generation vaccines specifically for some of these variants of concern, like the one from South Africa. So everyone's moving ahead with their original vaccine because that's the one, at least in the U.S., that the, the dominant one is the B117 and it'll work just as well. 
But um, down the line, don't be surprised if you're going to need a boost, a third immunization with the Moderna Pfizer vaccine, a second one with the uh, J&J vaccine in order to give even higher levels of virus neutralizing antibody, make them more specific for the new variants. I want to pick up on a couple of things you just said, because this is, it's so interesting and helpful to just get the facts because what I want to end with is your campaign to combat disinformation. But you described this race between the vaccines and the variants, or at least that's how I'm picturing it. Is it for an American audience, is it inevitable that other than the British UK variant, other than the variant that I think has been named the California variant, is it inevitable that they make it here or can we still win that race? Can we get the upper hand with a certain speed of the vaccines? Yeah, I, I think, you know, given the pace of vaccinations now, you know, one of the things I, we, I said to the Biden administration, I think it's, you know, they had this plan to fully vaccinate the American people by the fall. And I, you know, originally that was a good plan. And, and very well thought out. But then with the B117 variant gaining ascendancy, I said, we've got to call an audible and do this much faster and do it by the end of the spring and go from immunizing a million Americans a day to 3 million. And, and they're stepping up. They went out and procured more vaccine. They created more vaccination hubs. So they listened to the scientists, which is important. I do think we're going to get there by, by the late spring, early summer, and that's exciting because the other performance feature of these vaccines is not only are they stopping you from going into the hospital or the ICU, symptomatic illness, studies coming out of Israel and the UK show that it's also halting asymptomatic transmission. So it's stopping the shedding of virus from the nose and mouth because the antibodies getting into the mucous membranes of the nose and mouth. And that means if we can fully vaccinate the American people, we can potentially halt this uh, epidemic. And yes, we'll need a booster, you know, if the South African variant or the Brazil variant gets here in a big way, but um, well, we can manage that. So, you know, at least for the U.S., definitely not the rest of the world, but the U.S., I have some optimism. If we can move quickly, we can get ahead of this. The, the hard part is the next few weeks because the B117 variant is, is gaining ground and we still don't have the mother load of vaccines here. That mother load comes in June and July. So the, the toughest part now, the crunch time, is the next few weeks. And to any governors and lawmakers who are deciding about opening their states, uh, am I safe to assume that you would say, can you please wait a few weeks? Can I please ask for everyone's patience because of everything you just talked about? I mean, that this is not the moment. Yeah, that's the whole point. This is not in perpetuity. So, I mean, look at what's going on in Texas right now. We have we have the B117 variant here in a big way. Um, there's a new study coming out of Houston Methodist Hospital here in our Texas Medical Center showing how quickly B117 is accelerating. Then you have the fact that, you know, we lost a week because of the collapse of the power grid in terms of vaccinating the population of Texas and we still haven't really fully recovered. We have other logistical problems given our size and everything else. So we're ranked in the bottom tier of vaccinating the people in terms of states. We're in the bottom tier in terms of how, how we're doing in terms of vaccination. 
and then you add on top of that, you know, the governor lifting the mask mandates. Um, that's a perfect storm right there. Oh, and then you have the also the inconvenience of spring break and a gazillion 20-year-old kids on South Padre Island in Galveston. So all that jumbles together to produce something not very good. And, and so I am worried about that this thing could blow up again. And there are other states like that. So some of the, the states that have the highest levels of the B117 variant are all, you know, mostly red state governors that are, seem to be defiant of social distancing and masks. And, and that's, that's not good. You mentioned about 34 things I'd like to pick up on, but mindful of our time, uh, you mentioned transmission and asymptomatic transmission and whether or not the vaccines can protect not just against the person who receives it from getting sick, uh, or at least from getting severely ill and being hospitalized, but also from passing it on. You mentioned the studies out of Israel. Do you feel pretty comfortable? I just want to ask again, just because I get this question so often, and again, I'm a lawyer, um, that once you are vaccinated, at least with respect to the original strain and B117, that you really are also protecting those around you? I think so. Even if you're exposed to the virus, and it looks like you're not even getting infected or it's protecting almost as well against documented infection as you are, as it is symptomatic illness. Um, so that's a pleasant surprise from, from the study. I mean, I wasn't too surprised because we saw in laboratory uh, animal infections with non-human primates that there was a big decline in virus shedding from the nose and mouth. So I kind of thought that's how they're going to perform, but it's nice to actually have that evidence. Now, I think a big question for a lot of families surrounds kids. I'd like to talk to you briefly about the timeline of when kids might get vaccines. But if you're in a family where all the adults are vaccinated and then you have another family or two other families where all the adults are vaccinated. Would you feel comfortable saying, yes, you can all get together indoors without masks because of that combination of kids having, thank goodness, better outcomes and also because of the transmission data? Well, certainly the CDC and their interim guidelines has not gone that distance yet. And I think they're being deliberately conservative because these are new vaccines. We just have these new data out now about interrupting asymptomatic transmission. And so I think they wanted to be conservative and not go that step. What they have said is, look, if everybody's vaccinated, you can all get together indoors and, and that's safe. And also, fortunately, they said, look, if you're a grandparent or parent and you haven't seen your kids in a long time, you can go visit them. And as long as everyone's from the same household, um, it's OK to be together as long as there's the unvaccinated that is high, high risk. What they haven't now gone is that third step, as you're saying, OK, can we you know, do a real big barbecue with people running in and out of the house and and multiple kids around and different families. That may come in time and I suspect it will um, because it's gonna be a while before the kids get vaccinated, but but not yet. Uh, what does a while look like for um, let's say elementary school aged kids? Are we looking at 2021, 2022, or is it just 
to Sintatel. To have them vaccinated? Right. I think the studies will go pretty quickly with the adolescents, and it wouldn't surprise me if by the fall we could have schools where the junior high schools, high schools, where the teachers, staff, and the students are fully vaccinated. I think that that's a real possibility, and that's going to be a very safe school. I think with the younger grades, you know, you know, fourth, fifth grade kids, we're not going to have that probably till next year, but the schools are going to be a lot safer because the teachers and staff will be vaccinated and the parents will be vaccinated. Um, so there will be some risk to the little kids, but I think modest given how generally well they do with the virus. And, and I think we will be able to have in-person classrooms even without having the little kids vaccinated. And it also depends on the level of virus community transmission going on, assuming that's going to be way down because of the vaccine and that there's no new monster variant that, that's come on the scene. So that by the fall, I think the quality of life in this country is, I don't know, it'll be completely normal, but it's going to look something close to that. I have thought so much about that word normal and what it might look like in the next year to um, five years. Normal other than the fact that all of us have PTSD. Yes, right. Kind of walking around like zombies um, trying to figure out how to transition uh, back to the workplace. I'm, For instance, I'm talking to you from my office, and I've been coming into the office now to do – and I'm not sure why because nobody's meeting face-to-face, and I basically come into the office now. I do the same Zoom and Skype calls that I would do from home. But it, it just makes me feel sort of normal again, getting dressed in real clothes and getting into the routine of coming into the office. Yes, many of us will look back at this moment wondering why, probably just speaking for myself, we didn't self-medicate um, and or self-medicate more heavily. It has been a time for many people. And my experience, of course, is unique because being front and center of this pandemic between co-leading a team that's developing a vaccine for COVID-19 and being on Zoom calls day and night about that and, and talking to the team in the lab and then talking to the nation about some very sad things, you know, starting at four in the morning into the evening. Uh, it, it's a, you know, I'm not quite sure where my head's at these days on all of it. And then, of course, because for years I've been going up against anti-vaccine disinformation campaigns. I've, uh, by default, I've become one of the world's experts on anti-science disinformation campaigns, something I never thought I'd have to do with my MD and PhD. But because of that, I was one of the first to see what the Trump administration was doing, uh, creating that disinformation campaign last March, you know, and I saw it coming out of Larry Kudlow and and Peter Navarro and, and the White House press secretary. So I was the first to call it out and not because I'm so brilliant, but again, because I've had all that experience and can smell an anti-science disinformation campaign a mile away. And that was an enormously stressful time, uh, you know, going into that very dark place in front of a national audience day in and day out. Um, and I, I still haven't recovered from that one either. So then let my way of thanking you be to only ask you one last question about that very topic, uh, because I think a lot as somebody who teaches election law, I think a lot about campaign disinformation. And you are, as you said, the nation's expert on scientific disinformation. Now, 
what can people who are listening do? I think so many people feel so helpless. How can people support your work to combat this disinformation regarding science, regarding vaccines, regarding basic things like should we wear a mask to protect ourselves and others? Well, I think, you know, for me, the, you know, in the beginning, it was quite lonely doing this. And and the reason I did it, you know, my wife, Anne, you know, she saw how upset I was getting about this. And, you know, the message as scientists is, you know, you're not supposed to go into the political realm, just stick with the science. And, and it wasn't that I was wanting to jump into the political realm. It's just that to tear apart the anti-science from what was going on, you had to call it out. And that was scary because at that time, I didn't have a lot of backing from the academic societies and professional societies. Um, Eventually they came around and I always had the backing of the American Society of Tropical Medicine. They've been supporting me from day one. And even the national academies were kind of holding back. So I was out there, you know, really putting myself out there. And that was tough. And what was nice is I started getting a lot of support from people on, on social media, on Twitter. I mean, I was getting a lot of hate stuff too, but I felt some reinforcement there as well. And, and that, that was pretty, that was meaningful to me to be able to, to have that. Um, so I would say, you know, one of the things uh, that, one of the changes that I hope to see happen it is as scientists, we start thinking of scientists in a new light and, and recognizing that they can be very powerful in, in the public domain. And we don't have to have everything we do communicated through journalists and anchors and, and scientists should have that freedom to be able to speak directly to the American people. And, and maybe that'll be one of the silver linings in all of this. Well, then allow me to thank you, not just over social media, but also verbally. Dr. Hotes, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for providing us with uh, real and factual information. And thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much, Jessica. And thank you guys for giving attention to this uh, uh, in this format, because I think there are things you can do in this longer format than a quick uh, two or three to four minute TV interview. You can find Dr. Hotez on Twitter at Peter Hotez. That's H-O-T-E-Z. He's the author of a number of books, including most recently, Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of Anti-Science. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. I have just, maybe against my better judgment, joined Clubhouse. Maybe I'll see many of you there. Same username at Levinson Jessica. Thank you so much to our listeners for your support. We love sharing these conversations with you. This one was super informative for me and gave me a little bit of optimism. I hope it did for you as well. And we wish you a great day. 